Hello and welcome to this special episode of Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane and I'm here with my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. And our guest host Cassandra Kane. Hello. We are here to talk about First Reformed, the unnerving character study from Paul Schrader. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sins, the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. So how are you? Oh, I'm fine. No, really. It's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary. You must come over. You must come over now. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. She had no idea that he was thinking of. No, I'm so frightened. These kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, I have not lost my faith. we did together was a sin. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. You didn't tell the police, right? Take a look at your own life before you criticize others. These are frightening times. We have to be patient. Well, somebody has to do something. Are you shake as I write these lines. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? Who can know the mind of God? I don't normally warn people about spoilers, but because this film is still relatively new, we're going to be exploring this film head to toe. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want it spoiled, turn us off, check it out, and come back. We will still be here. Ethan Hawke is Father Toller, the priest of a diminutive Protestant church on the outskirts of New York, whose counsel is sought by a young congregant, Mary. Her partner, Joel, is so consumed with eco-anxiety that he is insisting she get an abortion rather than bring a child into a world on the brink of environmental collapse. Father Toller's deepening investment in the young couple coincides with a several personal pressures, including an upcoming service commemorating his church's 250th anniversary and worsening symptoms that might foreshadow a cancer diagnosis. This was a personal project for Paul Schrader, who, despite having directed almost 20 films himself, is perhaps best known for penning Scorsese classics like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Made on a minuscule budget of $3.5 million and shot over 20 days around New York, the film was not a commercial success, but then it clearly was not intended for a commercial audience. Its slow pace, non-diegetic inserts, static photography and often silent soundscape are affronts to the screechy, CGI-laden storytelling that constitute today's mainstream movie culture. But Schrader's insistence that the audience slow down their run to a walk allows time to properly engage with the encroaching terrors of Father Toller. The lingering emptiness of his study highlights the muteness of God. 
the emphatic use of images of oil-slicked wildlife and humming power stations force us to absorb their all-too-real implications. The halting exchanges in a doctor's office as one test necessitates the need for another remind us of our own mortality, all of it working on our nerves until Father Toller's radicalization seems not the product of mental deterioration, but a crucial act of heroism in a situation where passive resistance has tried and failed. In one sense, the film is an exploration of spirituality in the modern world. In another, it is a call to arms to the powerless majority and an indictment on that 1% whose immense wealth comes at the expense of everyone and everything else. More than that, First Reform challenges how modern audiences engage with cinema, whilst being an introspective examination of a man who, emboldened by the rapture of new love, discovers he has enough faith to live and die for a cause beyond himself. So, Cass, what did you think of First Reformed? I remember seeing First Reformed for the first time and then I had to talk to someone about it. Um, And that's when I called you and I was walking home and it was like midnight or something and I'd left the cinema. I loved this film. I thought it was great. Um, Seen it twice now, but I still remember the the feeling of leaving it for the first time and just needing to unpick it and unpack it and just feeling like there was so much there to kind of talk about. But it's interesting, like, even listening to you do the intro, I didn't walk away with the eco-terrorism piece weighing on my mind so much. It was more the visuals of the film and the feeling of the film, and that's still what I think about a lot from it. So definitely, like, as a viewer, gave me a different kind of feeling than most films I think that's one of the biggest things about this movie is that it's such a personal experience and there's so much that you could potentially that could potentially resonate. So I think everyone will walk away with something different. For me it really was the eco-terrorism initially. I was it made me panic about the environment. And then watching it the second time with you recently, I was far more interested in him and I noticed how much depression plays into the film and anxiety and I think it is a bit like an onion this movie Mm. so Damien Cass and I were dying to know what you thought you only got around to watching this last night I know please tell us it's a great film I'm with Cass here I didn't walk away from it having seen it you know 12 hours ago thinking about eco-terrorism and the environment and and our effect on the environment that wasn't the major thing that I got from the film I'm not sure if that was Paul Schrader's intention I'm assuming it was somewhat of an activist project for him if that was his intention but I like in your introduction you said that this is a personal film for Paul Schrader and every film is a personal film for Paul Schrader it seems uh he just writes on that level he he writes his characters on that level his themes on that level and they really are just really deep and dark character studies and they always have been the films he's directed the films he's written including the films for Scorsese that he wrote right up until this one which um could be his best work as a director I haven't seen many of his films but First Reformed is my favourite film of the year. I know it was released technically in 2017. In Australia, it never even got a real release, or hasn't yet. But I I think this film is stunning. So, all right, a lot of people have said this film is a horror movie. What do you think? Do you think this is a horror movie? Not for me. For me, it was more about the depression and anxiety side of it. The pastor's kind of internal dialogue, what you would imagine there, and obviously what he tells us through the journaling, which I thought was a really powerful way of telling us where he was at and his own questions about everything, basically. So for me, it was very much his personal journey and his struggle with depression and meaning of life. And that that was kind of more how I saw it, a bit of a more of a drama, I suppose. I'm pretty liberal with my with what qualifies as horror, and this is by no means a horror film in any way. I don't even consider it a thriller. 
I'm firmly with Cass. This is a drama. That's interesting. For me, it had a great deal of suspense. So I would definitely think that it's it kind of seeps into the thriller genre a little. I don't think it's structured that way. I think, uh, you know, the film is quite clearly dealing with a person and people on a level that horror and, and thrillers rarely do. And I don't think it has the... I don't think it has the narrative trajectory of a of a horror or a thriller. If you think about the first shock of the film when he discovers, and you can say it because we're we're spoiling stuff here. Yeah, okay. How did that feel for you? It felt sad. Like it wasn't it wasn't sensationalized at all. It was very sad, very empty, very cold. We interviewed uh, Brian Eggert on our episode about Sexy Beast and his review of this film is also really good and he stated that a lot of Schrader's character arcs, mostly male, are, quote, agonising journeys of degradation that ultimately lead his self-obsessed male protagonists to a revelatory solution, usually in the form of a perceived source of purity, often a woman or grand project of some kind, which allows a measure of hope or reconciliation, albeit dark and tainted. And First Reform definitely fits into this trajectory. Technically, a lot of horror devices are used. The ambient score could come from any modern horror film because it it is pure just ambience. There's no real melodic score to it. There's something menacing about the framing and the symmetry of the film, the static shots, the fact that the camera almost feels dead. There's so much space all the time. Yeah. Between characters, between objects and things. The 4-3 ratio, you would think that there wouldn't be space But you're right, it's space in terms of isolation. Everything feels very isolated. It's almost like there's room for more to be in there, but there isn't. And that's saying something in and of itself. So it's just this emptiness kind of vibe. Very creepy. There was a movie a few years ago, and it was directed by Kelly Reichart. Kelly Reichart did that Michelle Williams Western. Yeah, Meek's Cut Off. Which uses 4.3 as well. And it was called Night Moves. It had Jesse Eisenberg in it. And that was an environmental thriller. And it was quite good. I liked that movie. But if you look at these films that... I mean, this one's much more uh, character-oriented. But if you look at the films that deal with a similar kind of theme, Night Moves is definitely a thriller. And First Reformed is quite far removed from, from what Night Moves is. Not that I think it's particularly important to assign a genre to this film. I don't think it's really important to assign a genre to any film. But just for me, the film was nerve-wracking. The first time I watched it... I was nervous about where it would go, and it feels like it's boiling to something. Father Toller wrapped in barbed wire at the end of the film feels like a horrific image. And that also recalls earlier work that Paul Schrader had done, particularly The Last Temptation of Christ, which he wrote for Martin Scorsese. To go back to the 4-3 aspect ratio, one thing I think that really does do is create a claustrophobia, just generally. And certainly in this film, we become exclusively bound up in Father Toller or Ernst's depression and misery. You know, depression is sort of this idea that all these other options close, and then you're kind of going down this narrow, dark tunnel where there's only sort of one outcome. The 4-3 ratio helps, I guess visually helps to make you feel that, that his windows are closing, that he's sort of spiralling downward. 
I think it works in that sense. The other thing that it does is gives Schrader greater control over what we focus on. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was a, a choice by Schrader to shoot in 4-3. And, I mean, the immediate effect when you begin watching a film as an audience that's in 4-3 is that it's different. That's what you think. It's different. Okay. I actually had to look if they'd sent me the right copy of the Blu-ray because I didn't know this was shot in 4-3 and usually I'm a bit more up with that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's different because almost everything in the last 20 years has been shot in 235 or 185 and presented as such on widescreen televisions. So you immediately notice this change. It suits films that focus on character, especially when that character, as you said, Luke, has that world kind of crushing in on them from the outside as Toller does here with his faith. It's a real masterful framing technique which forces the viewer to focus on the facial expressions of the character and the words that are being spoken. It works for Paul Schrader because Paul Schrader's words are always difficult. They're not easy words to continue to listen to. So I would say in a Paul Schrader film, especially where you're sitting there and two characters are talking or one character's talking for 10 minutes or 15 minutes in this sequence, it's easier in a Paul Schrader film to let your mind wander than it is in a lot of other films so this framing technique reduces that possibility there's less to look at in the frame so there's less less ways to get distracted why do you think schrader's words are not easy to listen to the majority of films that come out do not contain words written as eloquently as how Paul Schrader, uh, Paul Schrader writes. Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader. Mm. You know, it's different than going to the movies and watching A Star Is Born. Okay, so you're saying that it's less colloquial and therefore it's a little bit more literate? No, I'm saying most films are far simpler in their dialogue than the majority of films written by Paul Schrader. Because of the level of sophistication of writing? Yes. You know, it's like reading Dan Brown or reading Cormac McCarthy. You know, you know that one person is a better writer. During that conversation scene, I remember saying to Luke that I felt like I was being counselled. Yeah. That I couldn't not listen to Ethan Hawke's character. The majority of people who go to see this kind of movie are are people who want to see this kind of movie. But you get somebody who isn't familiar with this work, doesn't usually see this kind of movie. I think the framing helps to keep them focused on that scene in particular. But that scene, the reason I think we feel counselled is because it breaks the bridge between the viewer and the screen. Because they're talking about the environment, faith, grief... And suddenly they're not talking to each other about it. They're talking to us about it. It just takes on this extra level of significance and it becomes consequential to us and to our lives. Whatever they're going to say next is going to have deep ramifications for us. It becomes a terrifying yet totally compelling conversation. Look, this this is not about your baby. It's not about Mary. It's about you. And your despair, your lack of hope. Look, people have, throughout history, have woken up in the dead of the night, confronted by blackness. The sense that our lives are without meaning. Sickness unto death. Yeah, but this is something different. Yeah, no, man's great achievements have brought him to the place where life as we know it may cease in the foreseeable future. Yes, that's new. But the blackness... That's not. We're scientific people. We want to solve things. We want rational answers, right? And if, if, if humankind can't overcome its immediate interests enough to ensure its own survival, then you're right. The only rational response is despair. But do you think that, that, that there's any existence apart from this? 
this here right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right before us, after us. Yeah. 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 Wait. So you're, you're talking about the next lifetime, huh? You really? You just? Uh... I felt like I was Jacob wrestling all night long with the angel, fighting in the grasp. Every sentence, every question, every response—a mortal struggle. It was exhilarating. The framing also suits a lot of Toller as a character. He's very simple. You know, he makes a point of saying, I'm keeping this diary on paper rather than in a Word document, you know, so that he can burn it. You know, you can delete a Word document. It has essentially the same effect. So I think the framing is a lot like the protagonist of the film. Uh, The problem of these big sweeping visuals that come with widescreen aspect ratios is gone. It's further reflected in things like uh, Toller's living room, which has a single chair, and in the fact that he runs a church which is 250 years old and has about six people come to it every Sunday. You know, these are just further ideals of this bygone era. And we have that nicely juxtaposed with abundant life. Yeah. It's sort of funny and ironic that the church is called First Reformed because really abundant life is the one that has been reformed. I I mean, it's kind of moved with the times in a way that First Reformed Church hasn't, still has that very traditionalist view of religion and spiritual life. I think in... Uh, America, there has been this growing kind of movement towards, I guess you would call them mega churches. I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but at one point the Abundant Life Church says that they've got one room which seats 5,000 people mm. in it. And so a lot of these smaller churches that are in towns like this, are, it, it's probably a pretty accurate portrayal, I would say. Do you think this film is about a crisis of faith? Yes. And I, I think it is purely because of the question, uh, will God forgive us, which is posed throughout the film. So a crisis of faith in terms of, is Father Tola struggling to believe? No, I think uh, a crisis of faith in what he wants, what he thinks he should do as a human being on this earth because he now fears that there is this insurmountable problem that everybody is ignoring. So does he ever begin to lose his faith in God in this film? I keep thinking about the fact that he's that there's also this piece around the illness and that his life is coming to an end. Interesting that he would choose to self-destruct given beliefs around what that means um, in terms of an afterlife and whatever if you do still believe in God. So there's that, that piece was going through my head then, just sort of thinking, well, would he still believe? Would he, would he go to these lengths which he knows completely contradicts his faith. Yeah, That's what makes me sort of go, oh, maybe he's questioning that. And not only that, but there's he's he's pretty horrible to the woman from Abundant Life in that one scene. Uh, he has these uh, fantasies about getting with a recently widowed pregnant woman and the lengths that he go to include potentially killing a lot of people. So... There are some things there that are distinctly against what he what he practices and what his faith has taught him. I believe that would qualify as a crisis. Jesus doesn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm-hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. Mm-hmm. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. The, the U.S. Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? It's interesting how 
fish out of water like he is when he's ever whenever he's in the abundant life space. He feels so antiquated when he's put in that environment. You know, it's this very busy, very high energy space. It almost has an evangelical feeling. You know, let's like let's sing about our love for God. You know, Michael or Mary says that Michael describes it as more of a company than a church. I think these are just all things that are commonly said by critics of mega churches. But I mean, the church has had to change more than really any historical institution. It has really faced severe obstacles in remaining relevant. That conflict is in the film. It's sort of there underneath the plot. Like it's not ever really highlighted. It's not made much of, but it is there. And you could consider First Reform being a reversion, made that word up, reversion, reverting back to the way that churches used to be. Did that hence why that church is First Reform? Because people are these days pushing against corporation and the big machine. And so in a way, it's kind of like, are we just coming full circle back to the way things used to be. Even though we are experiencing, you know, everything old is new again, uh, there are no congregants that go to his church. I mean, it's, it is the choir leader, Mary and Michael. <laughs> That's really it. Yeah. There might be one or two other old ladies there. Was the choir leader there in the opening scene of the movie or was she just there in the second sermon? I, I only noticed her in the second. So did I, yeah. I don't think she was there in the first. I was sort of interested in finding out whether or not Paul Schrader, who wrote and directed this, was a Christian. He said, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sundays. I've chosen to be a believer. I have been a believer most of my life, and this is one of the things you deal with. My personal view of Christianity runs to the meditative side, not to the entertainment arena side. I won't attack those Christians who think that the movie's megachurch Hillsong Arena is actually Christianity, but it's not my Christianity. My Christianity is kind of sitting down and waiting. I thought that was interesting, that he actually believes in God, and it made me kind of view the film from a different perspective. I suppose... Being an atheist and being fairly cynical, I tend to come at all spiritual movies with a sense of this is going to show why spirituality or religion are either incorrect or evil. But the film doesn't really attack Christianity here. It has a very sympathetic view of Father Toller, and it shows that how his beliefs have informed his character in a positive way. And I think that that's really refreshing. The only thing I would say to that is Cedric and the way he's portrayed in the film because there is a slight little villain aspect, obviously more with the guy who owns the corporation. Bulk. Bulk. But I feel like, because he's kind of got two, three main scenes, but the two scenes I'm thinking of are the ones in his office, his magnificent office, and the way that the framing even changes between the two scenes. Yes. So the first scene with kind of the door open, him sitting down, offering him a seat first, and he's always kind of shot as this kind of intimidating figure and then the second scene obviously just gets worse because he's shutting the door he's turning his seat away from him he's making him sit at the office he's being very like adversarial and so I feel like his character if he's representing abundant life might be slightly antagonistic especially the the part I hated with him was it was just him being captured on television saying uh, oh depression is evil and Jesus was never depressed that's right yeah I hated that part and you're right he is he is portrayed as a little bit of a villain. I think that there's a lot of commentary on megachurches in this film and how evil they are. I think it's pretty uh, basic and easy to read. It starts at that uh, scene in the diner where Bulk comes Uh into it. I mean, it's questioned before that, but it's shown for me very black and white in that scene. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, look, generally all of the times that we see Abundant Life, it is portrayed pretty negatively. Mm. 
I mean, but having said that, the first time we go into abundant life, there is this absolutely celestial, beautiful choir singing going on. And we see young people engaging with religion and God, and we don't see a lot of that. So, But there's also this very deliberate shots of them being knobs, basically. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, poking each other and, and making fun of... Being kids. Yeah. And a later scene where he's um, in a group kind of session... And he gets challenged by that one teenager. He's saying, oh, all Christians have to suffer. So what did we think of Ethan Hawke in this film? I've written here that it is by some distance the best performance I've ever seen him give. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought he was amazing. He carried the whole thing. He's heartbreakingly good and very restrained, which is sometimes something that Ethan Hawke isn't. But in this film, he is terribly restrained, but says it all through his eyes. He's having such a resurgence in the last five years or so he's um he's been so good in every role it's kind of sad i feel like every role he's very lonely just every role he does when he was younger ethan hawke had kind of a almost a backstreet boys kind of boyish reality bites kind of is that him yeah Yeah. i think now though he's at an age where you know obviously his face has changed and he kind of looks like almost an eroding boy group boy. He looks like the old member of the Backstreet Boys. But that's exploited so well in this film. The idea that maybe this character's best days are behind him. You know, it almost has a the wrestler type feeling about it where you can see someone limping to the finish line. It does. That's a good comparison. What do we think about his relationship with Mary? This is obviously the most complex and most explored relationship in the film. Do we think it's sexualized? I think in his mind it is. Yeah, I feel like it's not black and white. She's one of the only females that he has much of a relationship with other than the choir leader, which is not a good relationship. And so I feel like because it's this one woman and she's pregnant... So she's very feminine, she's very representative of life and so many other things. Like it's more of a love than a sexual relationship, I think. I think probably there's a sexual part of it, but I feel like more for me it's just this kind of humanity and love connection between them. I feel like it's far more spiritual and one soul connecting to another than it is carnal or anything Yeah of the body. Having said that, obviously, and we will get to talk about the ending, there are two scenes in this film that can't be taken literally. And the first one is obviously the experiment where she ends up on top of him and they kind of sync up their breathing and then we go on this sort of journey and we watch the earth slowly die. It's almost like we see Michael's fears become the backdrop for them, which which is very difficult to penetrate that scene, exactly what it means and exactly what Paul Schrader's intentions were. On one hand, we have Father Toller experiencing intimacy and love and kind of the dizzying quality of that, but set against this vision of apocalypse. And the two things kind of almost don't blend, and yet it it evokes an emotional response from me, or it did from me anyway. How did you guys feel about that scene? I think it was shot really beautifully. I think we probably need to talk about the other scene to make sense of it. Uh, Cass, you pointed out something which I hadn't noticed about that scene, which is that Michael is actually... He's at his funeral site in the boat. And he's looking up at the camera and smiling. Well, it's just like, uh, just now I was sort of wondering, so obviously this is a very literal interpretation of it, but, you know, obviously their hands are touching, the baby is between them. That's Michael to... Mm -hmm. 
to a point. There's almost kind of like maybe their through their connection is Michael, mm. and somehow that's what was represented in the visuals of what went through Tola's mind. That's really interesting. I didn't actually even think about the baby being between them, but that does seem significant now that you've said it. If this is supposed to be represent his awakening to the idea of being alert to the environment, I think you could have done this literally and you could have done it within the kind of linear narrative rather than this dream sequence and I don't think there is a purpose for doing it this way unless you want the audience to then later question the final scene because you've already established that there is a dreamlike quality to some of this. I think it's important in that respect because this is so obviously not literally happening but the final scene is not so obvious and so I think you need to have set it up that something that you can interpret any way has happened here so why not the same thing at the end it kind of eases us in to not take a literal not have to take a literal interpretation of the ending that's right yeah and i think that's the purpose of this this sequence i mean it's been very realistic up to this point as soon as they started floating i kind of groaned internally because i was really enjoying up until that point how honest and realistic the film had been uh, that said I think it, it, I think it all comes together in the end quite perfectly mm. so uh, that groan was just you know I'll tell you this story again Luke when I went and saw Castaway and everybody was so gripped the cinema was so silent for the first hour this is upon its first release and then it, he knocks his tooth out and it goes black and then it cuts to five years later and the whole cinema let out this groan because we were all so hooked on on this kind of silent film that had been occurring to this point and I was so hooked on First Reform to that point that this kind of took me out of it a little bit but as I say it all comes together in the end and I think that's the purpose for this scene. I had the same feeling with Castaway where it's almost a disappointment like no don't make me leave this space I'm enjoying this space. For some reason when they started levitating I didn't have that groan in this film Mm -hmm. I kind of got excited that the film was now taking me somewhere else that wasn't just of this earth I felt almost like my intimate relationship with Father Tola was getting more intimate because now I was allowed inside of his head and we've all had those sorts of feelings where you're lying in bed and suddenly you feel like you're you're levitating or you know you're going up into you're leaving your body we've all had those sort of strange experiences I just took it as that and I just went with it and definitely watching it a second and third time and being prepared for it I'm now even more with it but I can understand why you were feeling a bit Look, that's just my immediate reaction when that started happening. You know, uh, it didn't last. It's like when you read a chapter of a book and you're so engrossed in it and then it cuts to the next chapter and it's kind of like you have to start all over again getting engrossed in it but then by the end of that chapter you're fully engrossed in it again and this had the same purpose I I had that initial kind of oh damn okay but by the end of not that sequence but what that sequence led to I was fully engrossed again so it didn't it it wasn't a detriment to the film at all so it's it's not negative that was just my immediate response to to that shot I remember being worried that it would become sexual I remember being like oh I really don't want it to take that turn so I think I was quite relieved when it felt quite oh actually it's something otherworldly going on here. It's not going to turn into body heat. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this, Cass. Do you think that Michael is a dangerous or irrational person? Oh, God. I would have to do a really annoying response and say yes and no. Like, I think there are aspects of his behaviour that are dangerous. Obviously, the eco-terrorist aspect of it. Like, he's willing to hurt other people to support a very important cause. So there's, you know, there's that piece there. And, um... I, I don't know if we can say he's irrational, though. So I think, I, I mean, 
oh, his fear has probably caused him to maybe. Um, I can't even say that it would be catastrophizing because I probably don't know enough about the actual issue. Do you know what I mean? I have a sense of it in the way many of us do, but not, you know, and a sense of impending doom about it yet. Um, so I suppose I would say, yes, he is a bit dangerous, but I wouldn't say entirely irrational because how can you argue that it's not an extremely devastating issue that we have to pay more attention to and then I think that conversation with Father Toller where he sort of says you know taking away life is far more devastating than allowing it to come into this world like that sort of got to the crux of that should make your decision for you at that point if you're really thinking about aborting the child. Damien? I guess he is uh, what was the question again? Dangerous and irrational. He is both. Right. <laughs> I think he's shown as very dangerous. He's shown as quite unhinged. Irrational in the sense that, Cass, you say that, yes, this is a consequential thing that we're doing to the earth, and so therefore it is a, a, a rational response to combat that. However, it's not a rational spon- response to combat that by becoming some kind of suicide bomber martyr. I mean, that's been proven through history for all kinds of causes, not to really change anything. And that research is out there and he actively goes on the internet and, you know, he he probably knows this stuff. It's irrational to get your wife pregnant and be bringing a child into this world and then take away their father by killing yourself. That's That's an irrational act. These are not rational things that human beings do. So on a personal level, I think he's very irrational. I think he's scary i mean it's only a short leap from killing yourself in the forest to killing your wife and unborn baby and then yourself i mean it, it's only a short leap to wearing that vest and committing environmental terrorism i was quite scared of what he would do when he texted father toller to come and meet him on the trail yeah i was i was quite worried about what was going to happen at that point mm. I was looking up eco-terrorism and most people who have committed acts of terrorism are usually associated with some sort of environmental group. It's interesting that Mary says to Father Toller that he was part of a Do you group. mean most people that have committed eco-terrorism? Yeah. Right. Mary says to Father Toller that Michael was part of a activism group called the Green Planet Movement. In my head, I immediately thought the Earth Liberation Front in the US, which the US have, or the FBI have said is the most dangerous environmental activism group operating in the US. Very few eco-terrorists operate independently the way that Father Toller is shown, but also he reminded me a little bit of Ted's um, Kaczynski, or not he, but the film reminded me of Ted Kaczynski, who was the Unabomber, as we know. And he mailed a series of bombs to different scientists and industrialists and people like that. I think he only killed about three people. But famously, he wrote a really lengthy essay, which was called Industrial Society and Its Future. And that essay began with the sentence, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. And then it's sort of this long spiel about how industry and corporations have ruined the earth. But he wasn't at all like Michael, because he was more about how the industrial age has enslaved the human race and how it's having all kinds of detrimental psychological effects on us. Very rarely did he even mention the environment in this long essay. It's just a real-life example of somebody doing something dangerous and deadly for a cause. What do you think is a better way to do something for a cause? Do you think uh, sending a bomb or 
blowing yourself up to bring attention to the, I guess, the fact that you were in support of this cause? Or do you think an education program? I don't think education program is going to do anything. I don't think that... You don't think that um, finding an outlet to educate people is better than bombing yourself? I don't think it will work. The people that are polluting the earth are powerful and control everything and will destroy the earth at all costs to stay rich. But how do we know that that's occurring? How do I know that that's occurring? Yes. What do you mean, how do I know that? How do you know that the pollution is going to be a problem? You don't know that it's going to be a problem because some people bombed themselves. You know that because science, if scientific research is out there that's showing this. Well, yeah, I think it's like 97% of scientists have that's said right. that climate change is real and that the Earth has... Which is a figure he gives in, the, um, yeah. in that cafe scene I... as well. But what I mean is that that is research and education. That is the reason that we know this stuff. Yeah, but it's not doing anything. Well, no, I think it's a slow process, but there is change occurring. We just need people who are willing to make that change and not reverse that change. I wish I could be optimistic about it, but I I don't. I believe that greed is more powerful than reason. Well, I think it's about personal impact, right? So people don't often will be pushed to make a decision they don't want to make if it has a personal or they see the personal impact to them individually, which hence why, you know, money and greed plays a big role in why things aren't changing. Mm. And to be honest, like, if you think about what Michael was trying to do, that would have had a real personal impact on a very small group of people. That's right. Unless it hits you, the way you live your life, touches you emotionally, gives you empathy that you otherwise didn't have for the world, it's probably not going to do anything. I honestly don't think anything will happen about the environment until we start to see the effects of it. And by then it may be too late. I don't know. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be fine. But I don't believe anything will be done, significantly will be done, until the air starts to get poisoned. This is why I think we need education and we need people to decide that, hey, I have a vote. My vote counts. And I'm going to put it towards the person that backs up what I say. And that that is done through... I guess a whole series of campaigns you follow people that you believe are saying the right thing and doing the right thing and that who, who they are able to influence. I mean, that's how stuff gets done. Yeah, it is about influence, but influence can work both ways. All right, well, let me ask you this then. Did you want him to be successful with the bomb? Uh, on an entertainment level, yes, I did. <laughs> um, Why? Because you wanted to see a big bang? Yeah. <laughs> Would the explosion have been a happy ending? No. Cass, no. you didn't want him to be successful with the bomb? There was a part of me that wanted to see, exactly like Damien, that wanted to see some big ending and knowing that the you know the head of the corporation was in there and the head of Abundant Life was in there and you know you pick a few enemies and that makes it okay. But no, generally it wouldn't have been a good outcome for Tola. I don't think there is really a potential happy ending mm-hmm. for First Reformed once you get to a certain point. Yeah. What point is that? I would say when two things, when Michael dies and when he is quite clearly stricken with cancer. That's another thing that this movie looks at, which is the denial of physical illness, which is something that tends to happen to a lot of reserved men more than anything else. They just let the symptoms go for a really long time and don't address it and don't want to deal with it. It's that whole thing of avoidance. You know, if I don't acknowledge it, it's not there. (laughs) I said this to you last night, that he can't even save himself. But at a certain point in the film, he thinks he can save the world. And so really, when, you know, he starts to kind of go, God, 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 at the end, when he sees that Mary's walked in and his whole, all of his plans are thwarted, really, there was never going to be any other ending because this person of all people is so ill-equipped to 
pull off something this complicated and devastating. You know, he has no control throughout any of this film. Yeah, absolutely no control, not even over the church. Physical health over the church, over Michael. You know, that awful Bark, is that his name? Uh, Bulk. Bulk says to him, oh, so you were counselling him and then he killed himself. You know, that's one of the cruel moments of the film. Like I said, he's so good with words, but there's some particularly cruel words that are spoken to other characters in this film. Look, unless you guys have anything else to say about First Reformed, I think we have a quick discussion about the ending. I'd like to know what it meant to both of you. Um, Well, like I said before, I think that that earlier scene sets it up to not be taken literally. Uh, I think we've established in this shot that Mary is in the church, not in his house. Uh, We've also established that the pastor from Abundant Life cannot enter through the front door because it's locked. At no point has he unlocked the door. Somehow she's inside his house. So for those reasons, it's uh, unlikely that it's to be taken literally. He performs some action. He goes into the church and performs some action. And this is maybe his way of doing it unconsciously, not dealing with the repercussions of that kind of action uh, and instead focusing on something that he believes happiness is. I think like many viewers, I walked out going, what? So I didn't didn't land <laughs> straight away. Um, but, you know, I think as soon as you start to reflect on it, it does land that actually, you know, this did not actually happen other than in his mind. But I do think he died in his house. Um, drank the drain cleaner and whatever and in in the moments between being unconscious and death or whatever he imagined something wonderful happening. I had exactly the same I took it as a hallucination, maybe a final hallucination before death and that, you know, it was sort of his idea of heaven, that he had this this long romantic kiss. Mm-hmm. I think that the last scene is a an idea of heaven. For that man. Not because there is a heaven, but because he believes in heaven. Paul Schrader said about the ending, I don't know what the ending is. It can be read in either one of two ways. One, that a miracle has occurred and his life is spared. The other is equally, in my sense, optimistic, which is that he drinks the Drano and he's on all fours. He's throwing up his stomach and God comes over to him, who has not talked to him for the whole movie, and says, Reverend Tola, you want to know what heaven looks like? Here it is. This is exactly what it looks like. It looks like one long kiss, and that's the last thing he sees. The other thing about this film is that that music that's used over the top, which is sung by the uh, lead of the choir from Abundant Life, is so, so stirring. The scene previously where he's wrapping himself in barbed wire and he's centre-framed, that's possibly my favourite single shot of the film. I think what we're going to do now is air our interview with Frank Murray, one of the film's producers, and uh, we hope you enjoyed our little chat, and we'll see you afterwards. What a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. I was looking at your IMDb, and you've been involved in quite a few films that we love. Like, one of my favourites is Broken Flowers, and... I know Luke uh, has always loved Margot at the wedding, and we've actually done an episode on The Wrestler before as well. In those ones, you're credited as a production accountant. So how did that kind of transition work to go from production accountant to your role on First Reformed, where you're a a full-on producer? It's interesting. Everybody asks me how I transitioned from an accountant to a producer, and you got to go a little bit further back to understand how I went from an aspiring writer-director producer, auteur type to an accountant. And that's really just necessity. I didn't really come from money. 
I didn't really have the luxury of you know being able to afford the time to dedicate myself to waiting out my big break as a as a director or as a creative producer. So I had to get right to work, and I knew I didn't want to moonlight as a as a creative with a regular day job where you know I I spent my weekends thinking about being a filmmaker. I needed to kind of get into it right away. So when I left Montreal, I moved to Spain. I did all kinds of jobs there at the, at the lowest rung of the ladder. I, I was telling my wife too when anybody tells me like, oh, I started out. You know, as a PA or or I started out in craft service. You know, my producer friends. I'm always the first to be like, yeah, hold my beer. I was li- I was literally I was a rat catcher in Spain. Like I, my job was to go around this one set and empty out all the rat traps of rats, throw them out, and then reset them. Oh that was God. like my first. That was like one of my first jobs <laughs> in film. When I moved to New York, I had some friends that were friendly with a guy that. Had, was running this kind of post-production accounting firm where they ran audits on on productions that have just recently uh, shot and I started there and then it really it was only a matter of weeks until I kind of bullshitted my way into a, a first assistant accountant job on a production when asked if I had any experience doing it or if I knew what I was doing I just answered yes <laughs> and it was it was busy enough in New York in those days. It was it was sort of like the high water mark of New York indies, right? At the, in the early aughts, there were so many being made that it was pretty easy to parlay your way into something pretty good production-wise, and that's kind of how I ended up there. And I really did it to bide my time and learn uh, how the money flowed so that I wouldn't be beholden to other people if I ever reached the point where I could make my own movies. So, you know, for me, there was a very... I set out a very clear path for myself, and I put hard timelines on how long I was going to do it and when I would, you know, start making the case for promoting myself to, to other to other areas of, of production just so that I could eventually become a physical producer and then creative producer and then maybe have a shot at making my own films before age 45. And then you mentioned The Wrestler. The Wrestler was the first time I kind of jumped the number of rungs of the ladder. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a troubled production, so I jumped from being hired as the first assistant. I became the accountant of record because the accountant left, and then I became the production manager, production supervisor of record for the more complex uh, portion that was shot in, in Philly and stuff. And that was at the behest of the Bond Company. I convinced them I could get the movie back on the rails, and they wouldn't have to take over. And if I did that, would they then please make sure that they pushed me onto other production as as a, as a production manager, which is what happened basically? Is that still your end? goal that you would like to write or direct your own movies i mean there's a yes and a no as you get older you know the more time you spend in the business you realize that you know that pyramid i mean it's just like a microcosm of life you know you have one director uh, it's a it's a very coveted position mm. what sort of spokes out from that position is a lot of very very necessary jobs which could prove to be substantially more lucrative and in many instances, and and more rewarding if you force yourself to be a, a glass half full type of person. Because I'm a creative, because I'm a film academic, it's easy for me to sort of ingratiate myself to directors in such a way where I become an extension of them. With Schrader, that's a little bit what happened to me. That's satisfying, right? I mean, if I could if I could work with that type of auteur as as their uh, creative producer, then that's more than enough. Whether or not my goal is still to write and direct, I still write, but my vanity projects are always the ones I kick to the back burner the fastest. So I've got like three things that are between two and 10 years old that I've just, you know, I exhume once in a while or I blow the dust off of once in a while. And then I get back into it for a couple of weeks and then the phone rings and I have to just kick it to the curb again. I don't feel badly about it. 
you know, it's nice to wake up to think that I have these things and I have an outlet, but it's almost like become a hobby. And I, I came up as a musician as well, and I had to decide at <clears throat> some point in my late teens whether I wanted to dedicate more time to music than to the visual arts or audiovisual arts. And so music became a hobby, and it, I don't find it gives me any less to have it as a hobby and I kind of see the sort of dream of being an, an auteur filmmaker as very much the same. I'm pretty happy being a producer. If you think of a producer, it's one of those roles that outside of the film industry it's probably poorly understood as to exactly what a producer does. I mean, for instance, First Reformed has eight producers listed in the credits and it has four production companies and that's a lot of people with the same title but obviously one person has such a different role from the next person. In the case of First Reformed, I don't know of any movie I've been involved in where the listing of producers who aren't producers was as egregious as First Reformed. Yeah, right. That's something that was a little bit outside of my control. and It's a little bit endemic to that type of independent film where certain promises by certain people need to be made to people with money in order to be able to sort of pull it together. And I, I don't want to cast any one particular person or peoples in any kind of negative light, but it's unfortunately one of the, the realities of the business where you have to attract people that aren't that long in the tooth when it comes to how things work or how just how credits should be respected. And that's part and parcel of indie film, and that's why you have all of these names as producers. But as far as the, the actual nuts and bolts, the heavy lifting, the creative support and all that stuff, you know, that final card with the PGA mark is where it is. And for all intents and purposes, I am Paul Schrader's producer on that show. And it's, it's kind of like the idea of that tier on Kickstarter where you can pay $10,000 and have your name put on there as a producer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I mentioned this in an interview in the past too. It used to be one of these things that used to drive me really crazy. And again, with time, you learn to just pick your battles and not make yourself nuts about that sort of thing. Because the fact is that internally in the business, the people who need to know, know. Mm. and the fans or cinephiles who kind of watch the film and, and wonder who's doing what, they don't really need to know. But since you're asking, I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, I mean, I read an interview in Filmmaker Magazine with Paul Schrader. I'm not sure if you're aware of that one. The one in Filmmaker Magazine, I think, might be the one where he mentions something about he didn't have somebody like me on his other movies. That's right, yeah. He, he didn't have a and producer. Then he, he, also, he also mentioned something like, if I had been on that film, the studio would have fired me. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he was... He was after a producer who, you know, essentially had his back when he made unconventional choices. And obviously he was talking right. about you. But from everything that I've read and seen, you had a really quite special creative partnership with Paul Schrader, who is a, you know, Hollywood maverick, a legend and, you know, certainly yeah. uh, has his own voice. So to have that kind of partnership with him must have been pretty special for you as well. It's really special. And the truth is I'm very fortunate. There's always luck involved. Nothing of, of real value gets made before it's time and nothing happens without luck. You can have everything in place. You can have all the money in the world. You can have all the stars in the world. The market could be smiling. You could have a script that's sort of dialed into the zeitgeist. But if you don't have luck, you don't have shit. Mm. Where I consider myself lucky with Paul, it's all timing. And really the fact that we're peas in a pod. So as far when you say creative partnership, it makes it very easy when I almost know what Paul's going to say before he says it. And there were things that Paul had articulated, for example, on previous drafts that other people that had read it had moved him away from that I knew it would have existed at some point. And then when we first met, I mentioned, I was like, well, this ending or the direction you're taking seems anachronistic to your personality. And why am I feeling that? And that's when he was just like, actually, funny you should mention. And so it wasn't so much me imposing my creative will at all. It was never that. It was me kind of extracting from Paul what I knew I wanted to see 
And what I knew was always there because I know Paul intimately, not just because I'm a fan of his work, but because it's just we're just very similar for, for better or worse. It seems like everybody was on the same page. Yeah, and to, and to absolutely Paul's credit, when we first met, he said, look, I've got these three young department heads that I've worked with before and they'd worked on his previous film which you know I thought was super interesting and obviously as an adaptation you know I love the source material and, and all that but it didn't really resonate with me so I had my reservations about working with the same team but he he said to me the reason I like I like to work with them is because they're inexperienced enough that I can mold them in my image or to the project's image and I said okay well you know I'll be the arbiter of whether or not that's feasible and whether or not we can count on that being actually helpful from a quality control standpoint. And as soon as I met them, then I realized that, again, luck played into it because they were all very much like Paul and like myself and that they allowed themselves to be an open book right at the outset. And they're good listeners. And they were very amenable to having early conversations and involved conversations and putting in some work well before their deal was done. They were excited about the project for all the right reasons. And I'm talking about Alexander Dynan, the cinematographer, and Grace Yun, the production designer, and Olga Mill, the costume designer. And when you say everybody was on the same page, I mean, part of my job is to really get people excited and remind them why they're here. I don't really hire anyone unless they have a, a basic understanding of what Paul Schrader cinema is and a basic understanding of what the references we were pulling from were. Even the gaffer, key grip, dolly grip, all of these people had mandatory viewing to do. And I also pointed them to Paul's book, Transcendental Style and Film, and I asked them specific questions about, you know, which of Paul's movies they like the best, whether, you know, ones that he's directed and or written. And I engaged every department head and second in these conversations, because I think if you don't treat crew as filmmakers, then you, you don't understand why people are motivated to pull 14-hour days uh, away from their families, just because they've decided that they're going to be the best at that part of their craft in film and that they've either given up on their dreams of being a, a director or moved away or become more pragmatic about what their role is. It's just like a sports team, right? Just because that's the case, it doesn't not make them a filmmaker. Mm. If you look at people who are running to the trucks to pick up stands and run cable as only a bunch of grunts, then you've, you don't understand what it takes to sort of surround yourself with people who care about making a good film. And because First Reform is such a small team, it was important that everybody had that talk and everybody felt empowered in that way. And I have to say that that's a carryover from lessons learned on The Wrestler, mm -hmm. where it was very much the same thing. Sort of the narrative was around the fact that everybody was pretty excited about seeing Mickey Rourke back on the screen after, you know, having gone away and like kind of had such a rough go. And then everybody kind of went back and watched old Mickey Rourke films. And then that was sort of like central to the conversation and obviously everybody feeling very fortunate that we got to make a Darren Aronofsky film on his terms, etc., etc. And you, see, you always see it in the end result. But when people take this approach where they want to just keep the director for themselves or, you know, producers and executives just sort of treat everyone else as the help, I just don't think that it transcends. I tend to believe that that's usually made manifest on the screen. And I think the reverse of it, where it all works together, is, is also on the screen. And as I say, I think it's on the screen with First Reformed. How did you first come to be involved with this movie? I had done a film with, uh, with Christine Vachon and Killer Films, with Todd Haynes as the director, called Wonderstruck. The film sort of came and went. It was an Amazon production. Really beautiful movie. We set in two time periods in New York, 1927 and 1977. 
we did that movie and it was a challenge and Christine and I seemed to get along very, very well. And I told her I was planning on leaving physical. I was a co-producer on that movie. So I worked on, on the physical production side of it. And I told her that that was really the last film I was doing in that capacity and that I was developing some material and leaving the U.S. to kind of reinvent myself and uh, over the Atlantic and setting up a shop in London so that, you know, so people who knew me as a physical producer would keep calling me to do that. Uh, also, my wife wanted to move to London, so here we are. But when I told her that, I sort of involuntarily created an ultimatum for her to give me something else for us to work on together. And she had taken a look at some of the things that some of the things that I had, she thought they were a little bit too obscure. And then we were out at lunch one day, and she said, I, "I have something," and something had landed on her desk, kind of unsolicited. And it was Paul that had sent this first draft of First Reform to her office and said, "I may, you know, I may have Ethan Hawke interested. Blah blah blah. I think Killer might." be able to package the rest of it. I think Killer was really busy with a bunch of other stuff. They were trying to get away from the smaller movies because Wonderstruck was something bigger, so that their focus was on that. So she basically just sort of passed it on, passed the hot potato on to me right away and said, you know, take a look at this, see what you think, and see if you take could take the script to where it needs to be, etc., etc. And that's how the introduction was made, and I met with Paul, and the rest is kind of history. So the film was, you know, really in pre-production. You say that Ethan Hawke might have been interested at the time? Uh, way, way before pre-production. This is in, still in development. It's not development in the sense that we sometimes think of where all we have is a treatment. There was a full draft. But yeah, that's basically it was Paul, the possibility of Ethan, and Killer knew they could attach uh, a leading lady, and that's that's uh, that's when they went to, to Amanda. And I was given draft that I had uh, quite a few notes on. I was very nervous going to meet Paul Schrader with notes. I kind of wondered, how, you know, how does one go about that? But because I, I think because I was resigned to the fact that I was I already had a foot out the door. I, I'd already started packing my apartment to move to, to the UK that I had nothing to lose. And weirdly, you know, sometimes it favors the bold. I just kind of went, I told Paul what I thought. And he, he liked it and we were off to the races. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I'd be pretty nervous as well. Did the, did the script change much from that first draft that you read? It changed pretty substantially, certainly in tone and certainly in intangibles. As far as dialogue is concerned, there were some changes, but it wasn't overhauled that way because his message was always there. His crisis of faith through line, you know, that's enmeshed with the question of the future of the planet was always very central. And we sort of built on that. And even the weirder aspects like the, the magical mystery tour, uh, some of those were already in there, which he needed, to, he needed to explain to me about seven times before I just resigned myself to the fact that we're going to have this sort of interlude in the middle of the movie, which I think works really well because it does sort of send us into the next phase of, of the narrative. But, but as far as the, the, that sort of dark downward spiral, as far as embracing the fact that we could afford to go dark in this film and, and sort of pay homage to Paul's early work, that was something that, that was discussed with Paul. And that's something that he had initially wanted to do, but I think maybe was reticent to doing because he didn't have the support. So it's like I said, instead of imposing my will on, you know, I wanted to see it was more about getting it out of Paul because it was always there and you could tell that it's something that he wanted to do. And it was very funny, you know, after our, our first and second meeting, he started to listen to Leonard Cohen, who had just passed away, uh, his last record, You Want It Darker. And he sent me an email saying, so this is the theme, Leonard Cohen's from Montreal, you're from Montreal, <laughs> and I'm listening to Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker. 
<laughs> he's on the loop, and he's like, this is where my head is at, and this is what we're doing. And I'm like, yeah, I want it darker. <laughs> I can't imagine telling that story any other way except sort of with a very kind of dark, almost sinister tone. It's interesting because obviously as, a, as an audience, you only see it in the way that it is, yes. right? So it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. And, and that's really the best compliment because now we have the, the, the benefit of 2020 hindsight where the critics actually received it very well and people are fans of the film. So we're just like, yeah, we were right all along. The <laughs> hard and fast truth is that it could have gone the other way completely. Well, and it could have completely blown up in our face. Paul is the first to always say, you don't design something to fit the zeitgeist. You only hit it if you're lucky. Yeah. And again, we were lucky. Now, we did the best version of a dark film that kind of skirts the line of also being inspirational, if you see it the right way. Mm -hmm. And, and we, did, we did want to make sure that the, we played up that one important line as a through line in the narrative where Toller explains to, uh, to Michael when he's, <clears throat> when he's counseling him, that life is holding hope and despair simultaneously in your mind, and the film should be a representation of that idea. We knew that it could it could tip one way or the other. You know, it could be seen as something that was just only despair, or you know, hokily designed to sort of jam in some hope in there. It, it was a very very delicate exercise, and honestly, it's also. To Paul's credit and to his edit, young editor's credit, Ben, who's just awesome, they did a really fantastic job in, in making sure that um, it was both and that it was well received. But it was it was a real risk for me. The most beautiful expression of you know holding hope and despair at the same time is we have the images of Father Toller as he's wrapping the barbed wire around his chest and bleeding, but it's set to that incredibly angelic, beautiful music, choral music you know, from the, um, the singer in the film. I mean, it's such a strange choice, but it just works so perfectly. One thing I always come back to, and, and almost anything that's dramatic in nature is polarity. And, you know, light and dark is, is everything. And it needs to be visual, and it needs to be metaphorical, and it needs to be in the audio as well. And, and if you don't understand how to play on dynamics, then, then you can't really tell a story about the duality of man or the paradox between you know hope and despair that was very deliberate and we paul and i did talk about that early about the need to sort of create that type of juxtaposition in, in sound and image yeah it's pretty spectacular you've got two people here who uh, um, i guess are not religious at all but it just made me want to listen to more hymns to be <laughs> honest that scene at the end of the film was my favorite scene in cinema for the year um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very special and very affecting. Um, how much of a conversation, just on the, the style and tone of the movie, how much of a conversation do you have with, um, I guess, the other filmmaking participants about the choice to shoot in the Academy ratio? And also, I know on Alastair's podcast, you had said that originally Paul wanted it shot in black and white. And that's, a, that's one of those things that having seen it the way it is, I can't imagine it any other way. And I think it works so perfectly the way it is. Um, but how much, how much of a conversation do you have with the other filmmakers about those kinds of things? Uh, constant. I speak with the DP and the production designer as much, if not more than Paul. And again, it's really just so that their interpretation of what Paul wants and my interpretation of what Paul wants is clear. So it's almost going over it to the point where it then reopens it up to more questions for Paul, things that he may not have 
thought of, and then round and round we go. We had a lot of conversations about it. The black and white thing was a little bit of a, of a late battle because the, the distributor did not like the idea of it at all and were, were afraid that they would not be able to move the film. But that was all Paul. The decision to shoot black and white originally in the Academy ratio was because of Paul's... Um, Paul was really impressed with uh, Palakowski's Ida. And he, he said, that really works and I want to tell a story in that format. We lost the black and white battle, but in the end when we regrouped, and we had run some amazing tests on the Alexa monochrome and you know it, we had some ideas to really hard light it and give it this really really great noir quality but when they when that had to be reconceptualized we just decided to desaturate keep it in 4.3 and go that route it was very involved and the regrouping effort was you know many hours of sort of redesigning and rethinking and palette and uh you know lighting paradigm but we, I think we cracked the code because, again, with the, with 2020 hindsight, to me, the film works better this way than it would have in black and white. Maybe that's sort of this weird confirmation bias thing, but I'm pretty convinced that, that it's better this way anyway. I'm, I'm less biased uh, than you, but I'm, I'm still biased. And I think that the, the use of colour, the fact that it's so cool, it makes, it makes the world look like it's dying. And I found that very moving. I found the visual palette very, very moving and perfectly aligned with the story that it was telling. What was really fun about it is that everybody got to dork out around Paul. Paul pays homage, very subtly pays homage to uh, to other directors and, and films that he loves. And it was so fun on set when we we're in the middle of a setup, sort of playing what, what film is this frame from? You know, that's, that's one of the funnest things about working with, with Schrader is if you're a nerd and if you're a film academic, you'll never run out of stuff to dork out about. I was super pumped when we had our Purple Sky Day. To me, it's just it's a throwback to the ending of William Friedkin's Sorcerer. And on that day, I was just sort of like super excited. That's the image where he's looking at the plant? No. So when Toller dons the vest and he starts to drive around and he goes from sunset to sunrise at the quote-unquote toxic waste dump boat graveyard. Yes, right. When he comes sort of back into frame, the light changes to a purple sky, which is an image that was used in a lot of promotional material. No one on the day kind of brought it up. I kind of, in my mind, I was just like, that's, you know, the reference to me was always that that ending when Roy Scheider kind of loses his mind. But by the time he gets there, gets to his destination at the end of a sorcerer and the sky is this just eerie purple while he's just you know having his meltdown you liked it a lot but i think i preferred the original the wages of yeah fear. yeah i did like it yeah, yeah wages, of fear, wages of fear is a better film sorcerer is a much more enjoyable mess of an expensive <laughs> insane pinnacle of new hollywood film Right, and it has more of a place in my heart than Wages of Fear. But I'm actually speaking of my own aspirations. I have my version of a retelling of Wages of Fear slash Sorcerer that I've been toying with for the better part of about eight years. Ah. Maybe someday that'll see the light. Well, it's been uh, what's it been forty years since Sorcerer now, so there's uh, it's definitely the time for it. Another retelling. There you go. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> and I need. yeah. Could be like a twisted version of A Star Is Born. You know, every generation gets one. I'd rather see a new Sorcerer than a new Star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a few too many of those. Do you think that the Academy ratio? I mean, there's a lot of movies that have been using it recently, and I personally, I think that since 
There are so many different ways to consume a movie these days. The kind of creative options have been opened up for filmmakers to tell their story in things like the Academy Ratio. I mean, if whether you go to the cinema or whether you watch it on a big screen TV at home, however you shoot a movie these days, it's going to look pretty fantastic. And obviously the recognition that Roma's got, but also The Witch a couple of years ago, and there's been you know, so many in the last few years that have been shot in that ratio. But do you think it's easier to sell a distribution company or a company that's putting money into a movie on those kinds of choices now than it would have been 10 years ago? I think if you're pragmatic about the reality that streaming is where you'll probably end up, and if you're open to the idea of a limited or no theatrical run, then yes. The problem is that if you're still fighting the good fight, depending on who you ask the good fight, to have a theatrical run, it's a really hard step to not you know, shoot in, in 185 or wider. I don't think that's really going to change. I work with, uh, with Ang Lee, and I was part of the sort of first wave of his experimentation with high frame rate 3D. And you know, I can tell you that as much of a purist as I am, I'm also I'm a firm believer that he's got the code-cracking ability, along with like Jim Cameron, to get people back into theaters for exhibited cinema. But the idea that we can make a case today to shoot an aspect ratio and get butts into the seats and through the box offices, I just don't buy it. I think that that ship sailed. With streamers that have the ability to put it out in the theaters, if it's good enough, they will. Mm -hmm. But that can't, that can't be the norm, right? That can't be the, the sort of ingoing expectation. So even though Pavel did it, Paul did it, you know, The Witch did it, those are all aberrations. Mm. They're the vast exception to the rule because they did have a version of a theatrical run. But, you know, who knows? It could be it could be that people take to it some more, but that's left to be seen. At least that's not what I'm hearing from, you know, sales companies and people that run those metrics, you know. Yeah. A24 obviously picked up. Is it A24 or A24? A24. A24. Okay, so A24 picked it up after the film had done the festival rounds. And obviously they'd had some kind of experience distributing independent films and films that would have been a little more difficult to sell to an audience. How buzzed were you that A24 were the company that picked it up? They were the perfect, perfect, perfect outlet. Mm. When they started to circle it in Toronto, it was clear that they were the they were the only company that would have been able to position it and market it the right way. They're the cool kids. They understood it. They saw what we saw and what the, the target market needed to see to put it out there, and they did a fantastic job domestically. And honestly, if it wasn't for them, you know, Universal really were able to piggyback on on that domestic campaign because their A24 is so good. So they were really the perfect, you know, perfect company for that. And now they're getting into the production game too. So I think they're going to be a pretty amazing label for many years to come. Yeah, well, around the time that uh, First Reform was doing Toronto and Telluride, they were releasing Lady Bird and Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Disaster Artist and The Florida Project. So, I mean, that's yeah. just an indication of the kind of quality that they've been putting out. It's pretty stunning. Yeah, and they're, they're just great champions of this stuff. They make a play for the things that the bigger outfits would hem and haw about how much they wanted to pay for because they weren't sure about how to position it. Whereas A24 is the cool kids, and they kind of they crack that code, and good for them. Hopefully, as producers, they, they continue in that vein. They're really, really good risk takers, and they, they really put their money where their mouth is when it comes to celebrating the types of films that clearly you guys are, and I'm, I'm into, so. It's, and we need yeah. that. I mean, with the, the kind of generic nature of the majority of Hollywood cinema, Hollywood, you know, big box office cinema these days, uh, I mean, look, uh, if you listen to our show, you would hear us constantly hating on the Marvel 
universe because we never watch them and we're never going to be interested in watching them. But films like yeah. films like this, we we eat up. I try to always remind myself of which side my toast is buttered. So I I try to not be too brutal on criticizing any universe and stuff like that or franchise. But if I'm honest, you know, I've had on multiple occasions have to go back into my social media feed and delete a lot of things that I've said. Everybody you know, needs uh, to do that. Everybody just in, in case, the public just life. in case I get that call for this big ten pole yeah. and they do their diligence. <laughs> <laughs> do you see First Reformed as a message movie? When it came out on streaming, especially on Amazon, it was the first time the shoe dropped on the sort of quote unquote critic side. Because on aggregate, professional critics loved it. We were running like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes at some point with most of the major publications. And then when it got out into the world where the right wing gets to watch the movies too and they get to be sort of suckered in by a movie that shows um, a man of the cloth on the poster, that's when we started to be accused of being a left wing propaganda piece. Mm Mm-hmm. And I started to kind of read a lot of those, and I try to put myself in the shoes of everybody in the audience, even people I don't, I'm not politically aligned with. And it was really interesting to see that people do see it as a message movie. Anytime you have a smart storyteller that has something to say, it's a message movie. Mm -hmm. Even Conan the Barbarian is a message movie. (laughs) John Milius had his... I'm serious. He had his sort of point of view, and it's made manifest through that story. And I, I, I don't see First Reform as anything really different. I don't think Paul has nearly as much of an agenda as people think. I think people conflate the fact that he's very expressive in the media and, and in interview and stuff about his politics. But I, I don't really think that that's what First Reform was. I think that it's a very personal film for Paul. I think that he... He exposed a lot of himself through that script, but I think that it's just personal. I don't think that there's an agenda that we can tie to it at all. If it reads as fatalistic or nihilistic, I think that's just a function of the reality that we find ourselves in with with climate change. I think people are too quick to label it nihilistic when it's all it is is really born of pragmatism. Mm. The only thing that you might ascribe a little bit of a, where there's a little bit of a wink is really the whole crisis of faith thing. But this is that's the interesting part. You guys said you're non-believers. I'm not. I'm a non-believer. In fact, on bad days, I'm a militant anti-theist. Mm. And when I met with Paul, knowing that he came from that Calvinist tradition, was very sort of hardline Christian tradition. I found it very interesting that we very rapidly found common ground about how to explore and, and talk about the subject of faith. And it became very seamless because to me, the movie is more of a conversation than it is a message. And I don't know very many people other than people that suffer from very sort of deeply ingrained cognitive biases that have come out of that movie thinking that there was a definite message. Everybody's still talking about it. There's a conversation around the film, and that's the whole point. So I don't think it's a message film. I'd rather label it as a conversation. I think you're right, because that initial scene with um, Father Toller and Michael where they have that incredible discussion, someone could watch that and think that he's totally rational for not wanting to have children for that reason, and others could think that he was totally irrational. And Father Toller becoming radicalized, like an environmental radical, almost environmental terrorist, or leaning towards that way, could be seen as something that is, uh, we're at a point in in human history where that sort of um, aggression is required and and rational, or that he's completely mad. And the film doesn't tell you, it's never didactic, it doesn't tell you what's right or wrong. That's exactly right, and the minute you get into putting your foot down on any of these arguments you've lost. 
Yes. And you have, no, you have no business being part of that conversation. Since the film, obviously, I don't know how the algorithms work on social media, but it's, it's apparent that Facebook seems to think that I'm only interested in climate change. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, like my feed is just constant with this stuff. And I recently saw something where they had labeled, they had given a name to a group of women who speak out about their decision not to have children because of concern with population and climate change, etc., etc. The headline had this sort of very kind of rigid label. I don't even remember what it is. It's like climate birth or whatever, right? And I said, the minute you ascribe a label, a hard label to that, you're stigmatizing a group and silencing their ability to have a normal, rational conversation. It's the same with film. When you have that platform or you're up on that pedestal, you have a responsibility not to preach. And I think that that's really where Paul nailed it. And this is a testament to the sophistication of his film. It's not preachy because it opens it up to con the conversations that Paul and I are, about, are able to have as good friends, as somebody who came up through the Christian faith and, and me who walked away really angry with it. I, I think that's where the film wins and I think it's going to be why it's going to have longevity. And I think it, it gives it that sort of kind of cult quality where depending on which side of the bed you woke up that morning, you'll see the conversation between Michael and, and Reverend Toller in a completely different light. And you'll vacillate between each of the positions because life is keeping open despair in your mind at once. I think that's really the triumph of the film anyway. I agree. I think it rejects labels at every turn and it does so at a time when the world just seems obsessed with labeling everything. And it's a far more interesting space rather than putting things in black and white. It's a far more complex and like you said, it's a conversation and that's what's wonderful about it. Now, I don't know why people feel that they need to kind of break off into camps and labels and everything like that. I'd given a, Q, a few Q&As, and after every screening where I was asked questions, the question would come up like, well, wh what genre would you label that film <laughs> And then I said, well, what do you want it to be? <laughs> and I'd say, well, that's what it is, because who gives a shit? <laughs> and, I, and you mentioned The Witch before, and then there was this, like, there was this blip in critic time-space continuum where the word post-horror started to get bandied around. I'm like, what the fuck is post-horror? <laughs> I just don't have time for it. And I think that it hurts things. It's not so much any specific sequence or any specific theme or any or aesthetic that comes with the Marvel Universe movies. It's the fact that there exists the word, the word Marvel Universe hmm. <laughs> that pisses me off. It's not like... It's not Captain Marvel or fucking Black Panther. It's the fact that we're ascribing these sort of like hard and fast boxes to sort of shepherd audiences through this in this valley so we could just kind of kill them all with arrows from the top without thinking. Because it's it's sort of so overbranded that no one goes in to see anything without so much baggage and so many preconceived notions that there's you can't hope for them to come out enlightened in any way. Yeah, And you know what? To the defense of the directors that make those big movies, I think they do a pretty great job of doing the best of a difficult situation when it comes to kowtowing to, to a market that doesn't know any better because they're not given any. I actually don't get as angry as I used to about the product itself, or I don't get angry at, at the filmmakers because... You know, they have a living to make and they're offered this, you know, they're offered a lot of money to go. And most of them have been doing a pretty damn good job. If you were to take Black Panther 
and you just show, show me a blueprint for it, and it has to hit all these marks because it's the Marvel universe, and they're you know they're spending X number, and you turn out something that more than just passable, I and mean, it's like that interesting. I mean, that's a tour de force in itself. It's just not for me. It's just not for you guys because we're. It, it's really a question of taste. The issue I have is just that it's the homogeneity of yeah. the whole sort of quote unquote universe or it's just I find it just antithetical to what smart cinema should be well I think cinema should always be challenging and, and you know <laughs> even transcendent and I, I just feel like I mean I gave up on them after two or three films maybe ten years ago I just thought I can't walk out of another movie having sat for two and a half hours and I, I could have mapped out exactly what was happening because it's like just these series of boxes that need to be ticked every half hour and uh, you know I, I just I wanted I craved for something new and exciting and uh, and I just stopped I had to stop because I was getting so yeah. angry and upset that every time I went to the movies I'd leave feeling fucked and like I'd been ripped off and I think that that's not necessarily a function of ill will towards the audience from the part of executives it's it's like an ecosystem and an ecosystem sort of reacts to what's out there. To ascribe fault uh, to executives who decide to do something because they have a responsibility to financiers or shareholders or whatever it may be is wrong. I think that the important thing is to have a bigger understanding of why we have the kind of products out there that we do. And we are in a minority of people who have, and we have to call it what it is, the luxury of being able to discern between something that we find intellectually challenging and something that we find to be just pablum. Mm. Part of it is, well, that's a decision that we've made, that we take for granted, that our hobby and our sort of passion is going to be to dedicate a lot of our spare time to challenging ourselves and finding new and more rewarding films or, or, or works of art, etc. The truth is that in the last maybe 25 to 30 years, the amount of free time that people have with the squeezing of the middle class and the economics sort of favoring the top 1% means that the idea that we have all of this time to watch all this avalanche of content that's now available is completely illusory. Mm. Because it's like being fed through the line at a buffet, where instead of having time to become gastronomically educated or become a gourmet or a foodie, <clears throat> when it comes to stuff that we were exposed to, we have so little time because people are expected to work so many hours and to have so little time for themselves that they just can't be fucked to care about educating themselves. People don't read anymore, yet there's more books being published than ever. People don't watch long form anymore, yet there's more movies being made by Netflix and company than ever, not just series. And the way that people binge on TV shows is in these windows where they, they binge until 3, 4 in the morning because they can't just do it on a regular evening because they don't get home from work until 9.30 at night mm. or 10. And when I started to get really frustrated about that reality, like you know, asking myself, why is it that we just don't see the same? First of all, there's so much content, it waters down the, the quality pool. It's just like anything else, right? And I keep using this food analogy. Like if you have a caterer that's making food for a function that only includes 20 dignitaries, the dinner is going to be fucking amazing. But if you have the same caterer that has to sort of cater to a, a room with 50,000 people in it, well, the quality is going to start going down. More food is going to come out. 
more things are going to be sort of available. And to satisfy the market now, it's sort of like people just want variety because they know they don't have the time to sort of sort of sit and work to appreciate one thing because they don't have the time to educate themselves as to what to look for. So it's now it's just sort of grab and go, fast food equivalent. And that's not the producer's fault. It's just sort of a function of where we're at. But I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think that can necessarily last forever. Yeah. Uh, but it's for audiences to kind of push back. I read this morning and it absolutely floored me that this could be true that us which just opened with about 70 million in the US was the highest opening weekend for an original movie um yeah, how since, awesome is that since avatar yeah that's 10 years ago and and that just absolutely stunned me that that could possibly be true the tide might be turning mm. for the better mm. and you know this year with roma a lot of people you know, a lot of my friends that work at the studios were lamenting the fact that, well, if Roma takes anything at the Academy Awards, it's game over, man. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you can't out of one side of your mouth lament the fact that you're not finding enough good stuff being put out by Netflix. And then out of the other side say, we can't afford Roma. I mean, at some point, we all have to sort of want the same thing, which is for good movies to be made and for for companies that have deep pockets to produce movies that you know challenge the, the the sort of market status quo and to netflix's defense they're starting to figure it out mm. and i encourage them to continue to do that and you know they're in a position where they can do those movies and the rest of it i mean we can't fault them i think that it's really about audiences wanting to seek it out like you said i'm really pumped that jordan peele is on this run right now and hopefully you know he kind of opens the door for more people to take risks on on that sort of thing yeah look we've taken up over an hour of your time now so (laughs) we we just want to um kind of thank you and just uh say that uh, i mean we both loved first reformed we both had it in our top three films of the year um and we think it's a film that everybody involved and uh, yourself obviously should just be very proud of well thanks very much and i'll, I'll pass that on to mr schrader <laughs> please do paul and i are now joined at the hip yeah so right. we're aggressively kind of working toward trying to figure out a window to get this done at some point in 2019 oh well we are so happy to hear that um yeah thanks again frank for making time for us i know you're super busy and it was really really good of you yeah no problem thanks a lot guys it was fun That's it for this episode of Cellular Junkies. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode. Thanks again to Frank Murray for uh, coming on and talking to us. That was wonderful. Uh, And uh, we'll see you next month. Protect the wild Tomorrow's child Protect the land From the greed of man Take out the dams Stand up to oil Protect the plants and renew the soil Who's gonna stand up and save the earth Who's gonna say that she's had enough Who's gonna take on the big machine Who's gonna stand up and save the earth 
sons and daughters who's gonna stand up and save the earth who's gonna say that she's had enough who's gonna take on the big machine who's gonna stand up and save the earth this all starts with takers and feed the givers let's build the green and save the world we're the people known as earth who's gonna stand up and save 